You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, there will always be accusations made against the preaching of the gospel by those who are overtly opposed to it. But there will also be accusations made against the preaching of the gospel from within the church, the church broadly. The unashamed, unapologetic preaching of Christ alone for salvation makes many church-going people nervous. Now, we don't impugn their motivations. But this often comes from operating with too much of a legal framework or from operating according to human reason where motivations for obedience are merit. We're going to earn something. Motivations for obedience are escape of punishment. Where there's got to be skin in the game when it comes to holiness in this regard. There has to be something for us to attain. There has to be something for us to pursue based upon which we will be finally saved. Because if that's not there, the saints will not be properly motivated to obey. So what do we say to these things? These are real questions. You understand the objection. It hits in your mind and heart, just like it does mine. We're going to look again this morning for the third consecutive week to chapter 6 of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to Romans chapter 6. If you are here this week and you've not been here the last couple of weeks, we would commend the first two messages from this chapter to you. You can find those on our church's website. It might help you, even if you're hearing this sermon isolated from those other two, to go back and listen to the others so that you can understand better the flow of Paul's argumentation. Just a brief word on Romans 6, though, before we read our text for this morning. Many in the room are familiar that by the end of Romans chapter 5, that is where Paul concludes his expounding upon the doctrine of justification proper. How is it that a sinner, a fallen human being, could ever be reconciled to God? How is it that a sinner could ever be found just in God's sight. And Paul writes beautifully and comprehensively of how that occurs. There's one way and one way only. It is only by union with Jesus Christ. It is only by having Christ as your representative, whereby your sins would be forgiven and righteousness would be imputed. And thereby, in Christ alone, there is peace with God now and forever. He had written that. But then beginning in chapter 6, Paul demonstrates and proves that there is an intimate and inseparable connection between the justification of believers and their sanctification. He begins to do this by anticipating an objection. Given the doctrine he's been expounding, Paul, should we just continue in sin? To which he answers, by no means. For we have been united to Christ. 
Paul's appeal is completely to the believer's union with Christ and the believer's identity in Christ. The sanctification of believers, as we have been considering for multiple weeks now, can't be said enough. The sanctification of believers rests on the same foundation and comes from the same source as their justification. Let's now look to Romans 6, 12 and following. This is the word of the Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for us this morning is this. We're going to consider this text. We're going to approach this message in three parts. So part one will be brief. I'm just going to speak a few words about where we've been and where we're going in Romans 6. Part two we're going to consider our passage for today in three points. And then part three, I'll offer a few very brief meditations on sanctification. So that's the plan. Part one, I'll try to make it plain to you as we go. Where we've been and where we're going. In particular, what I want us to see here, I just want to reiterate how Romans 6, 1 through 11 is connected to Romans 6, 12 to 23. Romans 6, 1 to 11 is where we've been. We have considered this, how Paul's response to the objection raised is simply this. Should we just continue sinning? By no means, for we have been united to the Savior. We have been united to Christ Jesus. As it regards his death, we've been united to him in it. 
and his death is counted as ours. In him, this is the key, in him we died to the guilt of sin. We are no longer under sin's curse. We have been, verse 7, literally justified from sin. The moment believers are brought into union with Christ, which is precisely how we are said to be dead to sin, union with Christ, from that very moment we are brought into union with him, the source of sanctification is opened up and the streams begin to flow. Through our union with Christ, we partake of the life that is in him. As we've considered, free justification by faith in Jesus brings believers into a completely different state than we were in before, particularly as it pertains to our relation to God. Paul concludes this first section of the chapter in verse 11 by exhorting us that we must consider ourselves, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are to be convinced that this is actually our state now, and we must hold fast to this confession. The fact, and it is a fact, via union with Jesus, this is undebatable. We are dead to sin, and we are alive to God in him. And that That reality is the entire ground of our Christian duty. Now, where we're going, verses 12 to 23. Paul is going to write now of the effect of our having died to the guilt of sin. So as a result of what Christ has done and of our union with him, sin will not have dominion over us. It's where he's going. Having been delivered from sin's guilt, believers will, as a result, be delivered from sin's dominion. Paul makes inferences from the truths he's established in verses 1 to 11. He spills ink on our posture towards sin and righteousness. And given that our sanctification is not yet perfect, he writes with the understanding that we are still susceptible to sin and liable to temptation. So he exhorts, he warns, he reasons with us. And in it all, you're going to see this, in it all, he continues to ground us in what is true of us in Christ. May our souls be encouraged this morning as we consider what union with Jesus means for our sanctification. So all that by way of part one, where we've been and where we're going. Part two, we're going to be here for a minute. We're going to consider our passage today in three points. Point one, resist sin and pursue righteousness because you are under grace. Say that again. Resist sin and pursue righteousness because you are under grace. We're going to look at verses 12 to 14. We're going to spend a few minutes here. These verses, in particular verses 12 and 13 to begin, 
These verses are exhortations. These are imperatives. Let's just say this from the jump. This is massively important for our understanding. Paul has been as clear as clear can be that those who are justified will be sanctified. Why? You know the answer. Because of union with Jesus. It's because our sanctification is grounded in our union with Christ and rests on the very power of God himself. Now, we participate in our sanctification by virtue of the fact that we are now alive. We will and we do because God works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so, let's not get this twisted. Exhortations and warnings and even motivations toward obedience that are laid out in the latter part of this chapter are entirely consistent with the certainty of our sanctification that Paul has already proved. These things are in no way contradictory. People regularly get tripped up over stuff like this in the Scripture. We ask, again, human reason says, well, if God is going to sanctify us, brother, if it's certain, like you're telling us, because of our union with Christ, and Christ will see to it, why the exhortation then? Why the warning? Why the motivation? It's quite simple, beloved. These things, exhortations, warnings, motivations, should be understood as means which God uses to bring about his designed ends. He is a God of means, not just ends. Don't let this confuse you. Now, notice, big things for us to consider here. Notice how Paul argues in this chapter, Romans 6. Believers have been united to Christ. Because of this, believers are dead to sin, to its guilt. And given that these things are true, we are to abstain from sin. This is always Paul's pattern when he writes. This is always the pattern of the apostles. We considered this briefly last week, but we need the reminder. The Christian life is always one of status forward, justified, and we live from that, not for it. It's identity forward. We are in Christ, and we live from that, not in pursuit of it. As we considered, the Christian life is always because of, not so that. It is because we have been united to Christ. It is because we have died to sin's guilt. We're no longer condemned. It is because our sins are forgiven that we are to flee from sin and abstain from it. We are not fleeing from sin and abstaining from it in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we might remain justified, in order that we might be found in Christ. 
We do those things and we fight the fight because God has saved us in his son. We are exhorted by Paul in verse 12. He begins, he says, do not let, therefore, in light of everything we've been considering, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. At the resurrection, all this is going to be handled, right? But do not let sin reign in you, even now. He has to say this because we know that sin does reign over the entire world. Under the power of the evil one, for example, 1 John 5, 19. The only exception to this reign of sin is for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, Romans 7 is coming. Okay? Paul is going to write that sin is still a law in the members of believers. Romans 7.23. But it is not to be allowed to reign in this sense. It is to be resisted. It is to be fought against. So in our fallen flesh, we all know this, we have an inclination inwardly towards sin. We have cravings and we have desires that are wrong. This is what Paul means at the end of verse 12 when he says that we are not to obey sin's passions. Don't be ruled by your cravings, by the desires of your corrupt flesh, right? This side of the resurrection, there will be sin in our members. But we are to strive against it as those who have been united to Christ. We are not to give ourselves to sin, but we are to give ourselves wholly to God. What else would we do? We give ourselves to whatever service he calls us to to whatever duty he sets before us, to whatever trial he appoints, even to the point of giving our very lives. And we are to do this, you see this at the, in verse 13 in the middle. We do this as those who have been brought from death to life. So read this text again this afternoon or sometime this week with an eye for this. How many times does Paul ground you and me in objective fact of what has already occurred for you in Christ? This is just one of them. You have been brought from death to life. Book it. And so, live this way. Verse 14, put your eyes there. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Here again is a statement of fact. It will not, he says. It is a certain truth that sin will not reign over those who are in Christ Jesus. We are dead to the guilt of sin and so, beloved, it will no longer be the sovereign. This is the reason. Again, this breaks our human brains. This reality that sin will not reign is the reason why we're to abstain from it and to strive to present our members in service to God. It's important that we understand this. We will not fail in this endeavor. 
You hear that? We will not fail in this endeavor. Sin will not win. That ain't because of you. Consider these words from chapter 13 of our confession on sanctification. In the war of the Spirit against the flesh, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. God be praised. Paul goes on in the second half of the verse to further ground this whole thing. He gives the reason why sin won't have dominion. He says, since, or for, you are not under law, but under grace. Again, remember how we've thought about this. What Paul argued for in verse 7 is that we have been justified from sin. We have been freed from the guilt of sin. That's obviously what he has in view even here. The fact that sin will not reign is grounded in the fact that we have died to its guilt. It is clear here, when Paul says you're not under law, it is clear that the law believers are said to not be under is the moral law of God, think Ten Commandments, as a covenant of works, whereby eternal life is the reward for perfect obedience and death is the punishment for disobedience. Believers are not under the law in this sense, to be condemned or justified by it. That's what he means. We're not under the law in that regard. Remember this, that we have already in Christ Jesus, in the person of our great Savior and our great representative, we have already endured the law's curse and have obeyed its commands in him. We are under grace in that regard. In Christ, the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us, Romans 8.4. We're not under the law, we are under grace. Could be said, we're not under the covenant of works, we're under the covenant of grace. All that is required of us, beloved, is promised to us. All that is required of us has been given to us in the person and the work of Christ. We have been reconciled to God and we have peace with him. Everlasting peace. The Lord forgives our sin. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. He blots out our transgressions for his own sake. And he remembers our sins no more. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God's grace now works within us, and his grace is sufficient. The Lord has told us that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Jesus, having loved his own in the world, will love us to the end. He will not lose one. No one can pluck us from his hand, and he'll raise us up on the last day. We are not under law, but under grace.
great principles, saints. Great principles of Christian obedience are laid out in this passage. Monumental principles of Christian obedience are laid out in this passage. What are they, brother? Happy to talk about it. Holiness does not come from the law. Own that. Holiness does not come from the law. It comes from the freedom that Christ has given us. If that sounds scandalous to you, it's because it's the greatest news in the world. That holiness comes not by law, but by freedom in Christ. Here's another principle. The pursuit of obedience is grounded in the knowledge that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is grounded there in the certainty that that is true. Lastly, assurance that sin will not have dominion over us and assurance of final victory It is certain as certain can be because of Christ. Sin will not win. Christ will win the day. You will be finally saved. That assurance is what propels us forward in the Christian life. In spite of difficulty and opposition. Whether that difficulty and opposition be from without or from within. May we take these things to heart and pursue righteousness, and flee from sin, because we're under grace. Point two, you are not who you used to be. Point two, you are not who you used to be. Amen, somebody. Verses 15 to 19 for just a few minutes. So here we have another anticipated objection. What then? Are we to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. Again, you get it. You feel that. If we're free from the moral law, does that not give a license then to break it? If we're free from it, doesn't that give a license to sin? Paul again responds emphatically and indignantly, by no means. So here's the deal. The freedom from the moral law that believers enjoy, enjoy, excuse me, is freedom from the obligation to perfectly obey it for justification. And it is freedom from its condemnation on account of our disobedience. In that sense, in those two ways, we're free. But the moral law of God is obviously still the rule of life for Christians. This is in no way inconsistent. Hence Paul's response. Verse 16. Paul states something that is common knowledge. It's not complicated. We are servants of the one whose work we do. Those who sin are servants of sin, slaves to it. Unto death, he says. Those who obey are servants, are slaves of obedience. Unto righteousness, he says. Then verses 17 and 18. Notice this. Again, 
But thanks be to God. God gets the thanks. God gets the praise that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There's that union with Jesus thing again. There's that identity thing again. There's that status thing again that is objective reality. This is what has happened. This is what has occurred. This is who you are now, not who you used to be. In other words, thank God that you, who used to be slaves of sin, are now slaves of righteousness from the heart. You want to obey. God be praised that that is true of you. The fact that you now love the Lord in such a way that you want to honor him and are grieved by the thought of offending him is extravagant mercy and grace. We can also observe rightly that Christian obedience is obedience from the heart. You realize this? Unbelieving people pursue obedience. You've seen it, so have I. Unbelieving people pursue obedience. But this obedience is it's motivated by some kind of fear or constraint or self-interest. You fill in the blank, right? It's not obedience at the level of the heart, wanting to honor God and being grieved at the thought of offending Him. It's not that. This all brings us back to things that we've been considering. Remember this, that Christianity is supernatural. This is not a human endeavor. Christianity is not a religion of human achievement, unlike every other religion in the world. It is a religion of divine accomplishment. Christianity, the Christian life, is not the work of man. It is the work of God himself. Nothing, hear this and and be comforted by this, nothing but the work and power of God could take a person who desired to serve sin and make him into a person who desires to serve righteousness. Only God. An important note for us. Don't want to get too technical here, but this matters for our understanding. The verb rendered here in verse 18, having been set free from sin. It also appears in verse 22. The adjectival form of it appears in verse 20. This word is different from the word in verse 7 that sadly is rendered the same way. Because in my copy of the text, verse 7 of Romans 6 says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. But as we considered last week, that word should be rendered justified because that's the word in verse 7. It's a different word later in the chapter. In verses 18, 20, 22, in this latter section of Romans 6, Paul is writing of freedom from the dominion of sin that is assured to believers in verse 14. That's what he's arguing for. But that's not what he was writing about in verses 1 to 11. Why does this matter? 
If you're sitting there and your head is scrambling, why does this matter? It is because of this. The objective realities of verses 1 to 11, union with Christ, death to the guilt of sin, the objective realities of 1 to 11 ground everything that comes after. Verses 12 to 23, in particular verses 15 and following, are grounded in the objective soil of Romans 6, 1 to 11. In all of these verses, again, have your eyes open to this. Paul is repeatedly appealing to the new identity and status of believers throughout. Union with Christ, life and justification received. These things are the ground of Christian living. Verse 19, you can put your eyes there. Paul indicates that he's illustrating some spiritual realities using the customs and the ways of human beings to do so regarding slavery and servitude and the like, right? This is, he says, because of his reader's natural limitations. Now, this is not unique to the members of the church in Rome. This is common to all mankind. We all have natural limitations. It is not that these saints were uniquely infantile or deficient. I mean, in Romans 15, 14, for example, he's going to commend them regarding their maturity and their ability to instruct one another. But this is a statement about us all. We have natural limitations. We only know God as God reveals himself to us. We do, know not, we do not, cannot know God in his essence. We know him as he condescends and reveals himself to us. And it's legitimate that human illustration and human language be used to do that. Very simple. Paul goes on. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness that led to lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness that leads to sanctification. Do you see how he's reasoning here? You used to be something else. You're not that anymore. You used to be slaves to sin. Now you're slaves to righteousness. So in light of that, here is how we live. This again is Paul's pattern in how he writes to the saints. Point three of the text. Kind of in this same vein, in this same spirit, the header for point three is let's reason together. Let's reason together, verses 20 to 23. In a good way, my aim in the next few minutes is to kind of bring these verses down to street level so that we look at them and we're like, yeah, this is just obvious and good. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... Again, there's that former identity. You were free in regard to righteousness. What's he saying? He's saying this. Those who are servants of sin, they yield no obedience to righteousness. They don't obey righteousness. Nor do they act as though they have anything to do with righteousness. That's what he means. The conclusion is then inferred. In the same way, we who are now slaves of righteousness shouldn't yield obedience to sin or act as though we have anything to do with sin. Verse 21. Paul has exhorted us to righteousness and holiness, and now he lays before us the nature and the consequences of sin. He asks, you can see this, what did you get from sinning? What did it produce? In your life? 
uh, nothing good. What Was it sinning, when you were sinning, was it to your benefit? Well, no, not at all, actually. It's undeniable, right, that there is momentary gratification and pleasure in sinning. We're in the flesh. When the flesh is indulged, there's some gratification in that. Notice that Paul didn't ask that question about any kind of momentary gratification. He asked, what did you get from it? What kind of fruit was produced in your life when you were sinning? The answer is, I didn't get anything good. And it didn't benefit me at all. Notice this. Don't miss this piece. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That's something. This is another remarkable thing. Think about this. For many in the room, having been given life by God and having been united to Christ, we have a different perspective on our way of life. Do we not? Things that we used to do without shame, things that we used to condone or even celebrate, we now see as shameful. We look at those things and we see them for what they are. We look back, not with pride, but even with lament, and we think, man, I was a fool. So do not, for one second, think that all of this talk of the objective realities of Christ and the emphasis of the objective reality and fact of union with Jesus and what He's done, do not think for one second that all of that means that the transformation of life is not real. We have been changed. We are different now than we once were. Here's the thing. We can look to that, should look to that, and be encouraged, and be thankful, and be humbled, and give God the praise, because He did it. We should encourage each other in these ways. We have been changed. We are different now. We just don't trust the change. We trust Jesus. That's the distinction. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sin didn't do anything good for you, and it ends in eternal ruin and misery. So why would we want to have anything to do with it? It's very simple. The simplicity of what Paul is arguing for is beautiful. Verse 22, things are different now. Again, here's this, but now. It's not what it used to be, right? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is what has happened to you and for you. You've been set free from sin's dominion. And instead of being slaves of Satan and of sin, you become slaves of God. And now, unlike before, the fruit that you get is all kinds of good for you and for your neighbor. This fruit is presently unto sanctification. 
And eternal life is the final result of it. Verse 23. Death and life are set before us in this verse as they are perpetually in the Scriptures. Death and life. Death, we know, is the curse of Adam's covenant. The death that we experience now, even in the body, is but a foretaste of the final state of condemnation. It's a harrowing thought. The miseries that we experience now, temporal and spiritual, are but a shadow of the miseries that the condemned will experience for all of eternity. It's a harrowing thought. Life, on the other hand, is the blessing of God's covenant of grace. This is going to become obvious in the way that Paul writes here. The blessings and the joys that we experience now are but a foretaste of what we will experience with the Lord and with one another forever. I've had a number of conversations this week with people as we all have lamented how earthbound we are in the ways that we think. And we all struggle, and this is legitimate, to think and to envision and to understand what it will be like. If that's you, beloved, you are not alone. We cannot grasp or comprehend the glory that's coming on the day of our redemption. This is why things like this are written in the Bible. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't see it yet. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. That's life. But notice the words on the page here. For the wages of sin is death. Many in the room know this verse. If you've ever looked at the Romans road tract, right, it's in there. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23 before it, you know the verse. For the wages of sin is death. Death, in other words, is the just recompense for sin. But notice that Paul does not then say, but the wages of obedience. The wages of obedience is eternal life, is not what he writes. Not at all. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know these things, but we tend to forget these things especially when we start to consider obedience. If we're going to have eternal life as fallen people, as sons and daughters of Adam, it must be given to us, all of it. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it. And here is a mind blow for us. It's free for us. Now, it cost God the Son his life. He suffered his entire life, and he obeyed his entire life unto death, even death on a cross. He fulfilled the law because of what Christ has done. It's free for us. You see, we can't bring anything to God for salvation. Cannot be done. We sung about it earlier. Thankfully, God does not ask for anything in exchange. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the prophet Isaiah. If Isaiah's word isn't good enough for you, 
then consider the one who sits on the throne. This is Revelation 21 and verse 6. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know what comes next? To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only through Him. Only on account of Him. This brings us to part three. This will be brief. Brief meditations on sanctification. Again, I'm leaning on previous sermons preached. I refer you to those. First one. These will be kind of bullet point headers for you. The way that Paul concludes his writing on our sanctification, end of chapter 6, is strikingly similar to how he concluded his writing on our justification at the end of chapter 5. Romans 5.21 reads, As sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 reads, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Striking similarities. What's the conclusion? What's the takeaway? Pretty simple. When it comes to justification and sanctification, it is all of grace. It is all a gift. I don't know if you've ever thought about your sanctification as a gift from God to you. For your benefit and for the benefit of your neighbor even more so. And to his honor and praise. It is a gift. When it comes to our justification and sanctification, it is all secured for us by Christ. All. The one who kept the law for us, the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, the one who calls us to himself that we might be free, the one to whom we're united by faith, the one from whom death nor life can separate us. Jesus is the foundation and the source of our sanctification. This is why, even in sanctification believer, we must constantly look to Christ. Don't misunderstand me. The law is useful. The law reminds us of the standard. It shows us where and how we must grow. It shows us where and how we have failed. It reminds us regularly that we have not kept it. And it drives us to Christ who kept it for us. Looking back to verse 11 of Romans 6, we hold fast to our confession. We reckon ourselves dead to sin's guilt and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That confession, holding to it, along with a right understanding of the law and the gospel produces fruit in the saints. Most notably, humility, gratitude, love, joy, peace. In short, saints, we consider the law and we look to Christ. We take Paul's exhortation from verse 11 to heart. 
We reckon ourselves dead to sin's guilt and alive to God in Christ. We take that home to our hearts and we live there. This is how we walk with the Lord. Next brief reflection. It's been said before, bears repeating. Beloved, Christ is our righteousness and Christ is our sanctification. Slightly different emphasis than what we just considered. Track with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's that humility piece again, along with praise and honor to God. This glorifies and honors the Lord very much. I trust the Lord has been honored in what we've done today. Not because we have brought him something based upon which he would look at it and accept us. I trust the Lord has been honored very much because we have come with a collective sense of our need of Christ. And we have cast ourselves upon him and God is glorified in that. Saints, we are being sanctified and we will be sanctified. Hear this now. Do not twist my words, but hear this. We are being sanctified and we will be sanctified and this will be true in the good decisions that we make and through the poor ones. This will be true in our successes and through our failures. This is to comfort our souls, not to condone foolishness. Do not misunderstand this. Consider the words again of our own confession. Chapter 5, paragraph 5. Let these words wash over you as you battle sin and you are disappointed and you are grieved in how it's going. Take heart. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them. To make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Amen. Amen. Now do we understand how all that hangs together? Are we to live life trying to read through the lines of providence to figure out exactly what God is doing? No. Because when we do that, we will most certainly get it wrong. But may we be comforted by these truths that this is how God is and how he works. Next brief thought for you. When it comes to Christian living, it's very simple. We tend to codify and overcomplicate everything. Let's not do that here. Very simple. We trust Christ. And when it comes to how we live, simple guidelines. You ready? If the Lord says something is good in his word, pursue it. If he says something is good in his word, strive after it. If he says something is bad in his word, run from it. If he says something is evil, fight against it. Now, in all of that, much grace is required, but it is not complicated. Amen? Amen. We move forward. Last thing, putting a bow on this. I appreciate your patience. Putting a bow 
just on the things that we've been considering for a few weeks. The wisdom of the world and all those who are opposed to the gospel will levy the charge. They will continue to lob the grenade. They will say, the doctrine of free justification by grace on account of Christ will produce lawlessness and licentiousness and laziness and apathy. But we press on undeterred. Why? Because we know the truth. It does not produce those things. The preaching of the utter sufficiency of Christ produces sanctification in all of the children of God. As has been said, every view of the character of God in every part of the plan of salvation tends to promote holiness in his people. Amen. As has been said, every new view that believers take of the gospel of their salvation is calculated to impress on their minds a hatred of sin and a desire to flee from it, to which we say amen. And now to him who is able, beloved, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And we close in prayer.